happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 223 for July 14th, 2021. Happy birthday to my mom. And this is the EdTech Situation Room. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the absolutely stunning University of Montana campus, right here in smoky, hazy Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, uh, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. It is really excellent to see you tonight, sir. It is excellent to see you as well. I have missed you, but actually uh, have had some 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 good weeks of travel close to your neck of the woods. I was we we I I, I did a little calculation to say how could we swing you know a, a trip up to Missoula. So and I will say I I don't know it. Uh, I, I predict next summer will be an exciting one for the Friars. I'll I'll leave it mostly at that. But I did talk to my relatives about maybe doing a family oral history. Um, workshop up in Cody, um, maybe in June. Uh, so we'll have to, we'll have to chat and see if we couldn't maybe take a road show up to Missoula area and anyway, see, but it was great to be up there and Deadwood, South Dakota, incidentally, really exceeded my expectations because that's where we had a family reunion. Um, now, while Bill Hickok was only there for a few days before he got killed, and you would think he had lived his life there the way the town claimed it. <laughs> and it reminds of, like, you know, uh, Catholic churches and Orthodox churches that had, like, um, oh, what did they call it? You know, the remains of different – they had they were not called artifacts, but um, anyway, there's just the holy, you know – Anyway, remains and and so anyway, he's buried there, and that's really famous, but or exciting. But uh, I'm I won't go into excruciating detail because that is not the focus of this um, podcast. But Lead South Dakota has the deepest mine that goes over six thousand feet down, and it operated for over a hundred years and pulled out tons of gold and just this quintessential you know company town. But it is now the site of the dark matter detection effort of the United States. And so not at the bottom of 6,000, but, you know, about halfway down is where they have this whole lab. It's called the Sanford lab. We got to, to take a tour and see, you know, where they send the, the uh, cages up and down. They used to free fall, basically these cages down. Um, anyway, it was just fascinating. So learning about, you know, mining history and, you know, Old history, such as we have here in the West, which is not as old as, you know, many parts of the world. But yay to be back. And we have a new puppy in our family and there's lots of excitement around here. So I'm hopeful that fires are not burning and you're not smelling the the, the burning national forest at this point. Um, are you guys doing okay for rain and that kind of thing? No, it's it's very dry here. And um, the unfortunate situation is that I've never seen, um, I, I well, I've never, I, I've only lived in Missoula for, this is my sixth, seventh summer in Missoula. I've never seen this many string, strung together, ni 90 and 100 days here. So we have had a couple in the upper 80s, but this is it, very intense going back three or four weeks. We had a couple hundred degree days a few weeks back. Um, but, uh, next week it's, it's going to be, I was just going to check. I think Sunday it's going to be 106 oh. and then Monday, hundred and Tuesday, hundred. It, it's not necessarily the single days, uh, at that temperature. It's all these days in a row because, and, and we've had relatively little moisture. So there are, uh, dozens of, of, of smaller fires in Montana. And of course the, the large fires in, in, uh, Northeastern California, um, are where we're getting most of our smoke and haze right now. And, and, and unfortunately, July 14th is a very, um, early, uh, um, uh, uh, time for us to see, to see smoke like this. So it's unfortunate. It, it is a product of, you know, a changing climate because Western Montana used to have a, a bit more of a moderate climate. Um, and, uh, Missoula in general would see rain in the summertime and we really haven't seen all that much. A couple nights of rain, but that's all. So, yeah. Well, when we were in, uh, Wyoming, that was similar to what we were, well, we were hearing about the dryness and, you know, the probability of, of a difficult fire year. So, yuck. Uh, hey, it's a good time not to live in Seattle. You know, just about a week or so ago, they hit 108 or just crazy, crazy temperatures. So if folks are interested, Oklahoma's really not that bad right now. You know, we're only hitting the low 90s and we were, at, you know, it was like 69 degrees this morning. So anyway, 
This isn't a weather show. What the heck are we going to talk about, Dr. Neifer? Do we even remember after three weeks of break? Uh, well, um, I will say that uh, there's no way we're going to cover all the news that's happened in the last four weeks. I did try to do a, a pretty decent job. I've been collecting some stories. But we look at, at, at technology headlines and try to kind of shoot them through – um, uh, the prism of, of education. And, and luckily, uh, we know that, that schools across the United States are, are busy in the middle of their fall planning. We might, I imagine, have a couple comments about that tonight. So, you know, uh, we haven't missed too much in, in our brief hiatus in the last couple of weeks, but uh, we have several categories to deal with tonight. So tonight, uh, assuming we get to it all, and for those of you that have listened in the past know that we struggle sometimes to get through even parts of our list, uh, uh, we have security news, tech correction news, Google and Microsoft news, a couple of really interesting things going on there, some COVID related news, some social media information, um, the geeks of the week. And then if we get to it, uh, I, I've actually read relatively little interesting Apple news in the, the, the last couple of weeks to share as well. So, Wes, is there a place you'd like to start tonight? You bet. Let's just jump into the tech correction. Uh, this is the New York Times from July 13th. France fines Google $593 million for not negotiating, quote, in good faith, end quote, with news publishers. Um, as frequent listeners to the show will know, Jason's term for what we're continuing to see play out with probable regulation of technology companies is called the tech correction. And this, you know, is an example. <clears throat> a month or so ago, we talked about Australia and how, you know, for a while, Facebook just stopped putting news on. Well, did they shut down the platform entirely or just not have any news links? I think maybe they were like not serving Australia. There were, there right. was, there was major issues with, with, um, you know, both Google and Facebook. And then there was a settlement. And part of that is just, you know, news companies wanting money for the use of their links. And since the beginning of the internet, you know, being able to put a link to somebody's resource hasn't been something that's required an exchange of money, you know? Um, so anyway, this is a, a case that may be a harbinger. Is that the right way to say that? Of, uh, of more, uh, fines to come, uh, not only from Europe, but from, from other parts of the world as well. And then I'll throw one more in there, uh, and, and see what you think. A uh, great, excellent, fantastic podcast, uh, by Sway. I know that Peggy George, one of our regulars here on the show, likes to listen to Kara Swisher Sway podcast. And this is an interview. Uh, it's called, is this the big tech breakup we've been waiting for? And it's um, an interview with David Cicilline, who is one of the uh, representatives in the U S Congress who has proposed legislation. I don't know what the current status of these bills are, but he explains the strategy of having five different pieces of legislation. And part of it was that there just wouldn't be this single big push and then, oh, it's over. And then there's not any regulation. It was to kind of, you know, spread things out a bit. But it really does seem like we're going to have some kind of tech regulation, even though, you know, we have folks from the left and the right coming at this from very different perspectives. And as they say in the podcast, they're, there isn't any evidence that conservative voices are generally being censored. Like on Facebook, if you look, uh, they talk in the podcast, if you look at, you know, the top 10 most shared links, uh, you know, over half of those are consistently, you know, conservative voices. But of course, the banning of, of President Trump from Twitter and um, a lot of the rhetoric that, you know, surrounded the uh, 2020 election and, and the and what's happened since has focused on on that. But, you know, we've talked about the social dilemma, the, the different impacts of, <clears throat> you know, surveillance capitalism and the ways in which our, our data is is monetized and weaponized. So, Dr. Neifer, do you think we're going to see more fines for the tech companies? And is the, the, the tech correction here? Uh, yeah, it, it, it clearly is probably the beginning of, of the broader action. And uh, you mentioned the Trump lawsuit, which I uh, it, like at least my reading of tech journalism's answer to that is that uh, there, there may be something there from the standpoint of I think, we, you know, no matter what your political situation, we can all agree that there there's something we need to be doing here in regards to big tech. But I'm not sure if Trump's uh, uh, thing is the suggestion, but the bottom line is, is that uh, I don't think we come up with the right solution, but the only way we're going to do so is by throwing things, uh, you know, uh, proposals up and then seeing 
we could do to modify and massage those to, to find the, the right middle ground there. And that, that's where I think a lot of this is going. Um, the, the, the problem I keep running into though is that, um, you know, I, I, Google is not the reason why news is in trouble right now, right? Like that, that it, it, news made a massive mistake. Uh, 25 years ago by throwing their wares online for free. Um, they might, uh, they might have slowed down the, the, the vast adoption of, of, of internet, uh, as, as an information resource if they had thrown everything behind a paywall. But the bottom line is, is that news made that mistake themselves, right? And that was pre-Facebook. It was pre, uh, 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 well, in fact, it was pre-Google, uh, that, 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 that happened. Um, it's something really interesting happened. Um, I, uh, uh, one of, I, I, I kind of run my own investment account. Uh, and I do do some uh, investment in stocks there as part of my process and, um, you know, nothing fancy, but I do do a lot of research. And um, the New York Times recently has ended up on a lot of kind of stock picker recommendation accounts. And I read a really interesting article the other day uh, in the stock media talking about how the New York Times, uh, in their process of putting a paywall up, uh, and then starting to aggressively market and advertise all their amazing services that you get for $10 a month have managed to get a huge subscriber base that increased dramatically during COVID that's not going away after COVID is, 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 is starting to, to evolve and dissipate from its, 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 uh, pandemic high in, in 2020. And, you know, I'm not saying every news organization is going to be able to do that because I think a lot of papers couldn't sustain, um, you know, uh, 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 their business behind a paywall. But I, you know, I, for journalism and broadly media to blame, um, Facebook, uh, uh, Google now for that, I think is, is, is a bit disingenuous. I also think it's important to understand that, uh, Google is a discovery engine for news, right? Like I can understand maybe not wanting to put the full article on, on, on Google's website or on Facebook for that matter, but it is an important discovery engine. And to be honest, I would have no reason to go to the vast majority of news sources unless a search engine sent me there, right? I read only really 25, maybe total publications in any given month that I go to, to look at the publications. And I'm, what I would say is probably a pretty advanced news consumer, right? Uh, the fact that I do all of those is that otherwise I have to rely on discovery engines to do that. Google uh, services like Flipgrid or Flipboard uh, that that's where I, I do that process. So again, I, 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 I think we have to go through these proposals and, and, and go through regulatory regimes to be able to get to whatever the grand answer to all this mess is. But what I would say is um, uh, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. There definitely is a lot of whining going on by folks who are, quote, losing as a result of big tech, whether that's, you know, <clears throat> and it's not just big tech, but, you know, Walmart shutting down companies and Amazon and mom and pop stores and Main Street, you know, you know, there, there was a lot of there was some discussion about that in that Sway podcast. Um, but there's also, you know, the the issue of uh, liability and section and 230 and, you know, just whether, whether or not, um, I mean, regulation's not going to solve the disinformation challenges that we face on the platforms today. Um, we, we just, there's a, there's a lot of, of, uh, of, of discussion and, and talk about antitrust and about not allowing, you know, huge corporations to get even bigger, um, you know, maybe making Facebook step back their acquisition of Instagram, um, the ways in which Amazon is able to, you know, put their product, you know, both have a marketplace and products at the same time and, you know, do those kind of things. So it's going to, it's going to be super interesting to see how that plays out. And you mentioned, well, I mentioned, and you mentioned the Trump lawsuit. Here's a link to an MSNBC article, uh, that was actually from, um, the 9th of July, uh, and it's called what Trump's Facebook, Google and Twitter lawsuits really mean for its campaign. <clears throat> and it's saying that there's a lot of lawsuits today, including these that are not going to go anywhere in the courts in terms of being successful because, hey, these companies, Twitter, Facebook, they are private companies under the law. They can they they're they're allowed to have terms of service and community guidelines. And if you violate them, they can kick you out, even yeah. if you happen to be, you know, the president of uh, the, the most powerful nation in the world. But um there's a there's political gains that 
that he and the campaign and, and others are seeking to accrue as a result of this flapping around and, uh, and, and complaining. But, uh, I, in your stock research, have you, have you looked at, uh, some of the tech companies and have, are they facing falling futures? I mean, I, I, no, not, okay. Not, not the big ones. I mean, what I would say is that, and I guess, you know, this is not really a journalism podcast by the search of the imagination, but I own a lot of stock in tech companies, right? And I guess maybe if you listen to me over time, I'm a crank about every company. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm a particular, uh, particular fan of, of one over the other, but I, I think I cover all the spectrum. I'm pretty sure I have Apple stock and Microsoft stock and Google stock and, uh, those particular pieces. But what I would say is that, um, you know, uh, the big, big companies, I don't think are, are, are facing a lot of long-term threat because I think even if there is regulation, it's not that Google, Apple and, and, and Microsoft are too big to fail. It's just that who, who steps in in their vacuum, right? Like Google is, is much more than a search company. It's a cloud company. And uh, it, that even if they break up the search from everything else, they may start charging more for Gmail and, 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 uh, Google Drive, but I find enough value in that particular service, I, I personally would pay for it. But that's the problem with all these companies having so many fingers and things. It's also the Amazon problem too, right? Um, Amazon started off as a book company and, you know, they've made most of their money in the last uh, eight or nine years in, in their cloud services because they put together a truly outstanding model, uh, for, um, you know, for, for, for rolling out websites and, and, and putting things, uh, putting, you know, big infrastructure, you know, on the cloud. So much so that another article I see you threw in, uh, Wes, uh, talks about, uh, when Microsoft was offered a contract over, uh, Amazon, it, it created all sorts of red flags because of how well respected Amazon Web Services is in, in the industry. And, um, you know, I, 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 there are a lot of smaller, uh, you know, stocks that I think are threatened by this. And of course, the stock market's a lousy barometer for a lot of things, right? Because oftentimes stocks will increase in value when there's disaster news and decrease in value when there's good news in regards to how the economy or the micro macro world impact individuals. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I personally believe that we can't live in a world without all of these big companies because of how integrated they are in our lives. So the only option we really have, and, and I would maybe accept Facebook there, that's a whole different beast, but social media, I think you can divorce from that. But these big, uh, you know, uh, hardware platform uh, uh, companies, I don't know where else we, I, I don't know who the alternative to, to those are. And I, it's not like, the, you know, you can go right now and get, very great privacy based email if you want to. And it's, it costs you a little bit of money, but it's relatively inexpensive. People don't go there because they're not, they don't offer features. They're not easy to do. They're not prominent in the marketplace. They don't offer the ease of use on devices. And that has to matter at some point. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't hear, you know, politicians or the ones writing this, these five pieces of legislation, you know, calling for the, the shutdown and the end of any of these companies. Um, but they certainly are talking about curtailing their ability to become gargantuan and to not have limits. Um, what we were seeing, and I need to do a little more research on this in China because, you know, China is curtailing the power of, um, you know, some of, some of its companies and its entrepreneurs that have really, really grown. And I don't know if they're taking those over by the state or, or what they're doing, but to kind of bring this back to an educational focus, I mean, one thing we've talked about this on the show that we've seen Google specifically do is start charging for advanced features for its services. So in order to have, for instance, the ability to I think it is even record your Google meets, right? I think you have to be stepped up to an enterprise so, yeah. tier. Um, that was a really important feature that we certainly utilized a lot during the pandemic and other kinds of things. And it seems like Google has ha, not, I mean, it's not seems like Google has made a shift where everything was free for G Suite for education. You know, Google Workspace now is differentiated with free tier, you know, and some paid tiers and, you know, it, it very much remains to be seen how all this is, is going to play out. But, um, you know, if you happen to have the opportunity to talk about these issues with students, 
um, you know, free speech, as we've talked about, and civics and what the, the limits and boundaries of those are, what what private companies are able to do, whether that's a private restaurant that wants to, you know, kick somebody out who's being too loud or being, you know, um, disruptive or, or or whether it's a company that that wants to, you know, enforce its its uh, um terms of service or community standards. Um, these are things that, that are important to talk about. And I think that um, as we see this play out in, you know, in, in the political realm, um, you know, competition, we're, uh, I actually had some bad experiences with T-Mobile, by the way, running out of data quickly when I was yeah, at Deadwood. Yeah, I saw that in Twitter. Yeah, but, you know, in general, and I, I have had really great experiences with T-Mobile overall. We've talked about this before. Competition is beneficial, and, um, you know, it, it's good for there to be a marketplace and, and not just, you know, a single player. So, um We'll see. But there was just one more article under that category. Maybe you want to close that one out. Um, that was the CNET July 7th article. I think you dropped in YouTube yeah. recommendations. Serve up most videos viewers wish they'd never seen, study says. So uh, Mozilla uh, released a study saying that um, uh, 71% of measured, re- uh, measured attitudes about recommended videos on YouTube, the watcher said they regretted watching the recommended video. Now, I want to be very clear about this, and Wes and I having some, some uh, academic background in, in, in survey research, this thing has some problems. Uh, for example, you had to have had installed Mozilla's regret plugin uh, to your browser, right? And if you are the person that's going to go install Mozilla's regret uh, browser plugin, you're probably looking to, to regret some stuff, right? So, so to be clear, there's some issues there, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't an issue there, especially a couple of things when you dig down into it. Uh, um, the, so the, the bigger point here that, that, that I think Mozilla's trying to make and CNET's trying to make is that there are issues with, you know, we, we've reported in the past about how YouTube is, is, is partially to blame for radicalization of, of folks, uh, in, in really anything, although obviously we're talking mostly about politics here in the bigger picture perspective. And as it turns out, one of the issues has been that, you know, once you are down kind of a YouTube rabbit hole, it starts to deliver you increasingly intense of views on things, which, you know, if you think about it, it wouldn't be a surprise that you might perceive that someone it can be radicalized by that notion. Now, that, you know, said, the complexity here is that, um, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to tell, right? And in fact, YouTube's response to this was that our own research says that people hit like what, what's delivered to them. And I've actually you know, answered questions like that before. I've received recommendation questions from YouTube and I answered honestly. And, you know, how good of a recommendation was this for you? And then you answer back. But um, it just does tell you that we've got a ways to go. Yeah, we do. Well, um, I've done three workshops this summer for the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. My first one was uh, filtering the exaflood, which I think I'll probably call smart media dieting from now on. But I actually went through YouTube as well as Facebook and Twitter talking about the ways that our signals, you know, train the algorithm and how we can u- try and use that. We don't have complete control and even visibility into these algorithms. But, you know, for me, for YouTube... um, I have really, really good success with, with the recommendations um, to the point where I can open up YouTube on my Apple TV or my phone or whatever and, and just about always see something pretty quickly on my recommended videos. I'm like, okay, great. Um, so it just, I think a, a big feature of that, and if I was going to look at that research and how, you know, in addition it could be, besides widening the base beyond just those that had installed that plugin, I mean, how many of those folks are intentionally, you know, not only liking and disliking videos, but, you know, adding things to playlists, subscribing to channels, um, you know, commenting, all of those things are signals which the algorithm takes into account. So it is interesting, by the way, to think educationally, this is a... uh, uh, an activity which can highlight the reality of the algorithm and how we have customized feeds, which could even be called algorithmic persuasion that are, you know, designed specifically for us to just sit down next to somebody and say, Hey, can you pull up the YouTube homepage? Okay, here, let me pull that up and then open an incognito window and see what's presented there with nothing in terms of saved cookies and, and logins. And you're going to see different stuff. So those, those algorithms are alive and well. And part of the educational imperative uh, from a media literacy standpoint is to help 
help everyone understand these algorithms can be beneficial and, and targeted advertising in many cases can seem better than just, you know, shot in the dark. You know, I have no idea who you are. I'm going to show you, you know, these Viagra ads or whatever it is, but um, there's a lot of other aspects to that whole equation. So we have succeeded in talking about half the show for the tech correction. And I didn't necessarily <laughs> intend to do that by starting off with it, but I guess that sometimes happens when we pick a topic. So would you like to take us to, some uh, more tech geeky uh, articles, perhaps, sir. Yeah, let me let me t- say what I think is probably the biggest story that's happened in the last four weeks in impact schools. So um, uh, uh, on June 24th, uh, after a, a, a series of leaks, uh, Microsoft held an event that announced Windows 11. And I guess Wes and I have been here long enough now, right, to where we were around when Windows 10 was released back in the day. And... Um, you know, this is the last version of Windows ever, and, um, you know, that, that Windows will just be a service now that you, that you buy once and you get all these updates and yada, yada, yada. Well, um, you know, Microsoft is, is, is nothing if not unpredictable, and they have decided they'll be releasing, um, Windows 11. And, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make some comments about this. I want to be also really clear that I have not been able to spend the time needed to make sure I have every new update about this, which seems to change about every 15 minutes. And even in the 10 days after this was announced, I felt like the story kept shifting over and over and over again. And even trusty journalists, and I'll, I'll call out Paul Therott from Therott.com, who's also the co-host of uh, um, Windows Weekly on the Twit Network, seems to to be in a bit of, of a twist uh, as things evolve and change, as is Mary Jo Foley, the other co-host of that of that really great and informative show. So let me talk about very quickly for just a moment what Windows 11 is all about. Um, it, it is obviously a different look, and uh, to be honest, I don't really care about that. Uh, it, it, I do think it's kind of funny. It looks kind of like where Mac OS and uh, Chrome OS have gone in in the last uh, you know a long time. So I guess that that that. It's funny, but doesn't really matter. Um, there's also ways to tweak it to put it to put the menu to the left again, so that stuff doesn't really matter. But new start menu um, that looks like a, maybe a slightly evolved start menu, so it doesn't really matter. It's not all that interesting. Um, there are some things that are, are way deeper underneath that I think are probably worth your time. In that uh, there's a new driver architecture. There's new very tight security features. And then the one that I think has caused the most uh, uh, interesting discussion, although I'm not sure if it really matters in the big picture, uh, you can allow, uh, or I'm sorry, you can utilize uh, Android apps. And their way to do that is to integrate the Amazon App Store, which uh, I'll, I'll talk about separately in a moment. So um, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't get this in part because I feel like Windows 10's model has been really interesting, but I have heard a number of conversations on tech podcasts and read on, 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 on tech news that some people theorize that one of the problems has been with Windows 10 is that there's just no need to upgrade once you have Windows 10, that it w- runs very well on older hardware. In fact, um, I, uh, one of my, um, uh, uh, go-to Windows laptops that I use to test things on for experimentation purposes is an eight-year-old ThinkPad, and it runs fast enough on a ThinkPad with a good SSD drive in there, and I think I have eight or 16 gigs of RAM, that it would be just fine as my daily driver laptop. It's perfectly uh, 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 fast to do that. And I've heard some arguments made, including on the Windows Weekly podcast, that hardware manufacturers uh, uh, felt as if the new Windows strategy was diminishing um, uh, sales. Because if there's no new Windows, because everything is called Windows 10, a lot of people updated computers when there was a new version of Windows out, right? So there's lots of reasoning behind this, but that's not where the real controversy lies. Um what has come out um, is that uh, you need to have a special security feature in your BIOS. I think it's called TP2 or something. It's a special security protocol uh, that that is only on uh, uh, basically computers that are 2017 and afterwards. And the reason why that is crazy to me is because um, I have a, 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 a couple of years ago during a tech refresh, 
um, at work, I decided to go with a Windows laptop. It's the first time I've ever done that with, with work. I've been a Mac guy before and I bought a Microsoft Surface book. Uh, because that was something that was, 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 uh, uh, popular at the time, uh, especially at the university I was at because Microsoft was making big plays at universities. And it's still a very fast and it's, it's a pretty nice laptop. I prefer a Mac, um, as it turns out, and I've handed that on to someone else in our organization. Um, but it's perfectly fast, right? It has a fast i7 chip in it. It's got a big old drive in it. It's got a lot of RAM in it. And that laptop can't run. Windows 11, which means a four-year-old laptop that was a premium Microsoft product will not be able to run the newest uh, hardware. So um, I guess I'd start off with, and then I, I want to talk about maybe the school's discussion a little bit separately. Uh, anything interesting to you here, Wes, from a like a new feature standpoint? Thankfully, I am no longer in a role of even supporting folks that are using Windows. So, no, I am just, I'm living in a Mac OS, iOS, Chrome OS world. Um, and I'm super, super happy to live there. So, uh, I, I, I think that I'm trying, I was trying to find a lot article and see if I had linked to it because I was, I, li- I don't know if it was in the Twit or <clears throat> another podcast that I was listening to was talking about Microsoft's strategy for doing this. Um, and they evidently did have one, but you know, it's just, it, it does, it's, it's not feature laden and it, it doesn't seem to be extremely well, you know, thought out. So, um, it, it, I, you know, the interesting thing with this kind of, kind of deal is what impact for schools. I mean, we, we just tend to hang on to our machines usually for as long as we can and they can still function, yeah. you know, and so, um, it sounds like they're putting in some programmed obsolescence uh, with that chip requirement and things like that. And, you know, on, on, on the one hand, you know, we need security updates and we need, we, you know, we don't need people running. We shouldn't have people. The more folks that run unpatched insecure systems, the more insecure our entire ecosystem is. So we do need to have folks move forward with, with patches and updates and things like that. But the little bit that I've read about it sounded just like you're you're uh, representing here to be pretty slipshod, not really impressive in, in terms of a feature set that's going to impact people um, and, and maybe still a little bit murky in terms of exactly the why they were framing this as a Windows 11 update and, and even doing the whole this whole push. Now, that said, one thing I would say is that Microsoft has made interesting arguments, and a lot of this has been through uh, uh, friendly media outlets, but there may be very good reasons to limit an operating system to this new security protocol. But the problem is, and the article I'll refer to here is uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Noah Bailey put a blog post on, on, on June 27th, is that the bottom line is, is that if you're going to make this a minimum requirement, whereas it appears that much older machines will be able to very effectively and efficiently run Windows 11. One of the claims of Windows 11 is that it works uh, much better on lower end hardware, which, by the way, was one of the great claims of Windows 10, and they were right. Uh, A lot of low end Windows hardware that struggled on Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows 8.1 actually worked pretty well, at least good enough to be a basic surfing machine on Windows 10. But when we're saying that we're going to force this, 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 uh, you know, four year old or less CPUs and then to have this um, uh, this chip uh, uh, chipset available as part of your BIOS, um, I, it's going to create massive amounts of e-waste, especially if Microsoft decides, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to have two parallel systems, right, Windows 10 and Windows 11. I assume at some point that they start to, uh, you know, uh, 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 stop supporting Windows 10. And, and right now it's been, I think it's been uh, like two years that the half-year updates uh, stop getting supported or stop getting updates. It's, it's something along those lines. But you know, I know they're not supporting the 2015, 16, 17 versions of Windows 10 at this point. But at some point, they'll stop supporting that, at which point then you know schools have a terrible choice. Do we get rid of all of our hardware that's working just fine and would work just fine on Windows 11 minus that security feature? Um, um, or do we, uh, uh, you know, run insecure machines? And I guess if anything, what we've been, uh, I guess, proven over and over again in the last, um, you know, little bit is that security matters and up-to-date machines matter and installing patches matter. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is just so short-sighted. 
even though I do buy that, you know, it that the, apparently the security chip allows for a better, more secure driver uh, set. It allows for tighter integration between um, uh, 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 hardware and 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 uh, operating system software. Uh, but you know, remember that's what Mac does. But the way they pull that off is by uh, is by having. Uh, uh, you know, their own hardware. They don't sell their operating system to install on other kinds of machines. You can only do on Apple. And the way Microsoft has grown so much in the last, you know, really 30 years going back to DOS, um, uh, well, 40 years if you include DOS, is that, uh, you know, it installs on everything, right? It works on everything. And that's the power of it. So I, I was pretty disappointed in this. If things keep shifting, right? Like, you know, they had a, a tool where you could test your machine, then they took it down, then they put it back up, and now it's down again. You can install Windows uh, 11 uh, technical preview on any kind of computer. Uh, you don't have to have the chip. I, it just, it, it seems like a messaging mess from our friends at Microsoft. The big question for Microsoft, in my view, is going to be, are you going to reinvent your operating system? Right. And we're, we're seeing Google. What is it called? Azure, maybe one of the ones that, that Google is working on. There's another program that, that Google's trying is doing, but even with Chrome, right? With Chrome OS, that is, that's a, that's a oh, new OS. Yeah. Fuchsia, the Fuchsia OS. Fuchsia. Right, yeah. Fuchsia. Thank you. Yeah. Azure is a Microsoft, you know, data in the cloud. Sorry. Too many acronyms. And I might, I might, I'm not having to talk that lingo as much now as the, not being a tech director. Um, here's a very important thing that I would kind of just say overall. We need to keep our, our minds open. And this is hard because of baby duck syndrome and we invest in certain technologies. Um, but we need to, we need to, uh, <laughs> oh, I remember how long, and I'll, I'll call them out. Lubbock Independent School District ran the freaking Novell client on all of the, the systems in, in school. And we had to run that on Mac as well as Windows. And just, it was way beyond the time when Novell had just been, should have been sunsetted. Um, we need to have our minds open to how the landscape's changed, especially security, you know, and, and Chrome OS is a, is a just an absolutely fantastic platform for school computing. Um, I'm really looking forward to all of our middle schoolers, you know, having brand new Chromebooks next year, uh, with styluses. It'll be the, it'll be a Dell variant, but anyway, um, Microsoft's continuing to hobble along with what they've had, as you said, since 40 years. And they've been putting code upon code and, you know, continuing to try to to keep it relevant. So um, hopefully, because I do believe that we benefit from competition and innovation, we will see some excellent innovation and foresight coming from Microsoft. But I don't think we're seeing it with Windows 11. And, um, you know, how many people because of of the... Uh, power of, of the internet and the ability to run apps in a variety of different ways and not have to just run them on windows, you know, are, are able to use a variety of different computing systems. Um, and what is that going to mean for business and enterprise? Um, I don't know that we've reached a tipping point where we're seeing all kinds of businesses turning their back on Microsoft, but I, I would love to see, and maybe we could do a little research on this for uh, upcoming shows. What do schools look like, you know, in terms of um, how many folks are running Windows laptops today in one-to-one, you know, programs? Um, I think there's a heck of a lot that are running, you know, Chrome OS and Chromebooks and, and there's, there's iPads and there's Mac laptops. There's other things too, but Microsoft is, is certainly from an educational instructional technology standpoint, they do not, they do not seem to me to be on the edge of innovation. Now, Miguel Gulen, who's got his Microsoft certifications and is really, you know, uh, drunk deeply from that, that well, I maybe I'll reach out to him and see what he has to say about that. Yeah. And I, and to be clear, I think we need all the Microsoft, uh, 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 folks as part of this discussion, right? Because I would imagine it's a little disappointing if you win all in on surfaces, for example, and I have not, uh, seen any, any definitive information about like if, you know, three or four year old surfaces, uh, would be eliminated from Windows 11 as well. But that, that's a real bummer for a district that if you bought into the service, and I know a lot of districts that, and, and to be clear, that was a wonderful 
innovative form factor. And um, the, the the Surface uh, uh, book that I have was a wonderful innovative form factor. And I love Windows 10. Windows 10 is a great operating system. It is infinitely better, in my humble opinion, than the uh, the OS it, it replaced, which for me was Windows 7. Windows 8 was eh, but Windows 10 was really great. I've, I've in fact I've been a, a primary Windows 10 user for most of the last five years, but um, on 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 Windows machines. But the, you know the bottom line is is that um, you know it 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 was it it felt more like 20 year old Microsoft than it did uh, recent Microsoft because I feel like they've been heading generally in the right direction. So. There has been a lot of innovation. I just noticed you do not have a Geek of the Week, sir. So if you oh. haven't, you, you have 20 minutes. So Thank you. You've got some time. Uh, why don't we pick up a couple social media and COVID-related articles, and then maybe we can get some uh, some Google stuff. And I'd really love to, to hear you do that Audacity spyware. I'd seen that article, and that the one that you put in there looks good. But let me pick this one up on social media. This is in Gadget from July 9th. TikTok will automate video removals for nudity and violence. I think this is a good thing. <clears throat> we have heard, you know, Facebook and other social media folks and pundits, you know, tell us how artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to be the salvation for, you know, offensive content online and disinformation. But there are real limits to those algorithms and, and how uh, well they can do that. Uh, but the fact that TikTok is... Uh, employing these algorithms is good. And also interesting in the article is that they're making their um, actual software available. I'm pretty sure I, I, I read that um, in this article. Um, maybe it's not in there. Um, I'm pretty sure I read that, that they, they were, they were also, you know, offering, offering up some of their, some of their algorithms and, and their uh, AI technology. So that sounds like a positive. And on the educational lens, hey, when school starts in August or September, maybe for you or whenever, hey, how many of your kids are on TikTok? I'm, I'm, I'm going to definitely, um, I'm going to get to be a sixth grade advisor this year in addition to teaching my media literacy classes. And we've done some different surveys and polls and things like that. But um, at least of the kids that I'm teaching, I'm re really interested in in some of those metrics because it was just it was kind of shocking. Even under 13, you know, just just a ton of kids using TikTok. It's a it's a it's a hugely popular platform. And then I put two under the COVID heading. Uh, these actually shout out to Kristen Zimke, who's a amazing educator and literacy consultant and just wonderful person in the Chicago area. She's one of our faculty for the Summer Institute on, on Digital Literacy. Uh, these are, uh, um, well, one of them's not too old. This was a July 8th article from Parents Magazine. And the title is uh, Six Things About Remote Learning Teens Actually Loved. And this um, is an article by a teen. And, and there was another article I didn't drop in, but it was like, can we, this was a year old, can we stop telling the COVID generation kids how little they've learned? You know, but like there were some really, really positive things that did come out of remote learning. And um, there's things that we need to keep in mind and, and take forward as we, you know, enter this next school year, which will hopefully be, more of a return to normal. Uh, but that was an excellent article. It might be the first article from Parents Magazine we've ever had in the show. <laughs> and then the next one was a, a uh, July 9th article. And this is from Axios. And the uh, headline here is um, the post-COVID stickiness of hybrid school. And it's citing some statistics where parents as well as students in some cases, really like the option of online remote school, hybrid school. And so there's a marketplace demand. Um, it says a sizable chunk, 28% of students at the end of this year were still in a hybrid school, which meant breaking up days in the classroom and, and days at home. Um, and so it's suggesting that parents and students are going to push schools to try and include some of those pedagogies and not simply throw everything from the last 18 months or whatever away going back to quote unquote, the way it was, but maybe some of those things are going to move forward. So Jason, do you see increased enrollments in your future for the Montana digital Academy? And do you think where you sit in Montana, there are going to be some, some of these residual impacts from, from COVID and remote learning that are going to impact how students want to learn and how parents want to choose to send their kids to school? 
Yeah, I'd say that uh, I'm a little less optimistic than I was six months ago that uh, that districts will use this as a real opportunity to adopt some new ways of looking at things. Uh, it's been surprising to me in some cases watching these discussions go on, how quickly we're just shutting down what had been developed in the last 18 months instead of thinking of ways of keeping it uh, going or taking the best of it and evolving. So I, I will say that as a caveat, but yeah, the, I've seen a lot of these in- interesting discussions going on. And um, I, you know, I'll go back to, I think it was um, a Pew Internet uh, uh, life that, that uh, did start some of this surveying in the late spring that parents and students, uh, you know, aren't, aren't uh, all abandoning online options. Many of them want to keep them around. And for some of the reasons that the primarily face-to-face environment wasn't working for their kids before. And, you know, I, I'm happy to have the discussion about what works and what doesn't uh, inside of these environments. I think that discussion oftentimes, especially pre-pandemic, was more about hysterics as, as opposed to, you know, real research, the gold standard research, stuff that is... Um, you know, uh, uh, a double blind, well, you can't really do a double blind study in this, but, uh, randomized tr- uh, studies, uh, unfortunately, very few of those have been done in part because it's been, diff- it'd be difficult to do that, right? In regards to that, but there's been very little super high quality research in the efficacy of distance learning environments. And, you know, the stuff that exists say that in general, face to face is more effective than online environments, but that doesn't really mean anything when you start to put it through the, 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 the uh, spectrum of, um, of of individual student needs. There's a lot of kids that are not best served by sitting through uh, even a progressively scheduled uh, K-12 school in the face-to-face environment. There's a lot of health reasons, both physical and mental health. There's a lot of social reasons. There's a lot of family reasons why some kids are better served by being outside that that more traditional environment. Um, I'm not saying that it's it's easy to do that or it's financially realistic to do that or uh, uh, those sorts of things, but I think we have to be extra realistic that we most you know, or many kids need some additional options that we've really funded for for k-12 schools um that all said my program has some natural limitations built into it because we're not uh, built to be a full-time environment but yeah we get a lot of calls from parents that you know want want to take advantage of this environment i would argue that asynchronous learning environments are generally more flexible and generally meet student needs better than kind of the hybrid teaching model where there is a, a notion of trying to keep face-to-face via zoom meetings um, I thought it was interesting. I'll need to find this study because I'll, I'll maybe I'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Microsoft had released a study that says that it's just not good for us to be on, you know, video conferencing calls for eight hours a day. Uh, I agree, right? Uh, in fact, Tuesday is my day where I have a lot of uh, regularly scheduled meetings, and sometimes that means sitting on a Zoom uh, Teams meet for, um, you know, six, seven hours, and it is incredibly draining. And, and I'm in this industry, right? Like, I, I I sit in front of a computer all the time anyways. And that, that, that to me, it, it, I agree with that, right? Like, I, I think trying to recreate the face-to-face environment utilizing video conferencing isn't, um, is, is, a, is an easy thing to set up, but isn't always doing students and teachers a lot of favors. But, yeah, I hope we can take some things from this. All right. Well, we've got about 11 minutes. Uh, we've got some articles under Apple, Security, and Google. What would you like to do next? Uh, let's see here. Maybe... Yeah, let's talk about these Google articles quick. Like, um, just a couple of quick ones here. Uh, first, um, something's happening um, on Chrome OS that I'm not entirely putting my finger on yet because it's still pretty hit or miss. But ZDNet reported on July 4th something very interesting. Opera, which has been an alternative web browser available for what 22, 23 years, has been around a long time. But Opera, which still exists, uh, it's got a Chromium base to it, which means it's based on the open source project that also backs Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge, for that matter. Opera um, has released an alternative browser on the Android store for Chromebooks that's basically a desktop browser, but in an Android app. And what I mean by that is that if you have a Chromebook that can install Android apps, which is every modern Chromebook, you've probably noticed that if you go install Firefox, for example, it's not Firefox. It is the mobile version of that browser. And Opera has been the first to take advantage of the fact that you can install something on a Chromebook that feels and looks cr- closer to 
to the desktop version of the browser. And I didn't really believe that. And then I went and downloaded and sure enough, it feels very nice and very desktop-like in its experience. And the only thing I want to juxtaposition to that with is that I also, on a lark, about a week ago, downloaded, uh, hands down, my favorite graphics program is Canva. Canva is uh, an important part of, of, of my uh, daily experience in all of my day job, my side projects. It's replaced Everything uh, that, that has to do with graphics, Canva is amazing. By the way, free pro version for teachers. Uh, 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 it doesn't take that much to, to get it either, and it has 60 million pieces of clip art and photos in its library. It's, it's unreal how great Canva is. But I prefer the desktop version. I'm sorry, I prefer the uh, web version of it to the apps because the, the web version is just more stable and it feels easier. And I downloaded the Android app the other day on a Lark and it is uh, uh, light years ahead of where it was a couple of years back. And Android apps to me have always been kind of a joke. I love Chrome OS. I think it's a wonderful operating system, but the Android apps always seem pretty hit or miss. It seems like quietly some app developers are starting to create apps that feel like desktop apps as opposed to mobile apps that just are bigger on the screen. So I don't know if that's a bigger thing that's going to go on or maybe Chrome OS will continue to quietly reinvent itself. But I thought that was super interesting. Sounds good. Hey, how about that Audacity article under security? Yeah, let's do that one. Um, so um, something happened earlier this year. Um, Audacity, which is an open source project that was run by a, um, a, a for-profit company, um, uh, was purchased by something called the Muse Group. And the Muse Group is a, they make, a, a, a software for musicians and, and, and audio post-production and that sort of thing. And it's an open source editor, right? Um, and, uh, earlier this year, it was acquired by the Muse Group. And on July 2nd, Muse Group, updated the privacy policy, and this is uh, from uh, Lifehacker on uh, uh, July 6th, um, to say that there would be um, some limited personal information uh, sent back to improve the... Um, um, to improve the application. And it also noted that the company may share your personal data with law enforcement and sell it to potential buyers, right? This is an open-source piece of software. So... Um, uh, uh, a lot of people freaked out almost immediately. Um, and, uh, there was some discussion that, you know, it's pretty typical, um, uh, 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 for, uh, you know, for commercial software to do this. But the fact this is happening in an open source piece of software is very troubling to the community. And to be honest, I don't know. Actually, I don't know anyone that uses the commercial alternatives to Audacity. Everyone I know that's, that's, that's uh, uh, um, editing audio uses Audacity. It's installed on my, my on every computer I own right now. Absolutely, I love Audacity. I love. I, I edit, you know, almost all my podcasts on it, and I actually was on a slower internet connection when I was in uh, Deadwood, and so I did edit a podcast in GarageBand. I hadn't done that in years. But that article that you put in has a link to a couple alternatives, yeah. including Dark Audacity, which I'd never heard of before. And it is an open source project built on the open source Audacity, but not including those kinds of features. So if you're in a camp concerned about your, you know, it is IP address and probably they can connect that in the cloud to all kinds of things. But anyway, if you're concerned about the data being collected, there is Dark Audacity. There are some other options uh, it's another sign of the times of uh, surveillance capitalism, I guess, right? People see opportunities to monetize by sharing data. So I think that's probably what the Muse Group is, is seeing here. Awesome. All right. Uh, anything else that you'd like to pick up? Uh, let's see. I think probably almost everything here we can uh, um, push to next week. I mean, I, I, I will make one other reminder just because I've been dealing with this a little bit uh, personally in my professional life. I, we said this before, and chances are, if you are listening now, you've probably heard us say this in the past. If you have not ordered your tech for fall 2021, tomorrow, that's got to be mission number one. Well, um, and you're probably too late. It, yeah. it really depends on what you need to order and how much. 
Yeah, I uh, uh, worked with someone a couple of days ago that was uh, working on a small project, and um, uh, they needed they needed custom amounts of RAM. They needed high RAM machines for what they were doing, and the delivery date was uh, February 2022. So it's getting better, but ugh. Uh, we our teachers have upgraded to the new M processor MacBook Airs this summer, and I have been using. I had tested one earlier in the. In the spring, but uh, wow, what a fast machine and what a delight it is to just uh, have everything happen faster. So how fast do we need it to be? I don't know. It seems like we're we're doing pretty good there. So sometimes the Internet connection is, is, you know, the slower the slower part now rather than the computer itself. Yep, absolutely. Well, shall we geek of the week it? Yeah, um, I want to share a tool that is one of my first installs uh, on almost every computer I use, and its simplicity is the reason why I like it. It's called Simple Note, and Simple Note is like Evernote. It's like um, Microsoft OneNote. It's like um, any of these like syncing note products, but it is text only. Right. It's got apps on literally everything. There is a Chrome OS web app. There is a Microsoft uh, a Windows app. There is a Mac OS app. There is an Android app. There is an iOS app. But it's just simple. Uh, it's made by the people that make WordPress. Uh, Automatic is the uh, company that makes WordPress. And uh, Simple Note is owned by Automatic. And I absolutely love it because it, uh, I don't put anything, like I don't put student data in there. I don't put private data in there. I don't put credit card numbers in there or any of my passwords in there. But it is a very simple way to take text and text notes and, you know, move them across uh, you know, all my different devices. And it's one of the first things I install. And I looked the other day, I have like 450 notes on here. It's just random text that I, I, I dump into there and I love it. It's really great. Simple note. Wow. Is the name of that tool. Okay. Fantastic. Um, I have been increasingly um, putting my notes into the notes app of iOS and it's nice to have that synchronized across my phone, you know, sometimes my iPad, but usually my laptop. Um, I've even used it in the conference this, this time when, anyway, you can airdrop things and whatever, but I'm, I'm doing that. And then mine is BB edit. Um, have you used that as a Mac I app? Have. Yeah. Yep. And it used to be text wrangler, which was free. And then they discontinued it, but it's a uh, bare bones, I think creates it, but I have actually never heard of simple notes. So yay. Great to hear something about a new tool. My geek of the week is a video and it comes from Veraticium, which is an outstanding YouTube channel. If you don't follow him, uh, one of those channels that regularly gets, you know, uh, millions of views on those videos. And he just posted this on July 9th. It's called the biggest myth in education. Um, have you heard of this before, uh, Jason? No. Okay. So let me just ask you before telling what it is, what do you think the biggest myth in education is? Uh, I'll give you a hint. Um, it has to do with educational research and something that a lot of teachers believe in and even professional development folks will pass along and talk about, but the is research it, doesn't sustain it. Is it learning styles? It absolutely is. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. $500 to Dr. Neifer in Missoula, Montana. Uh, so, yes, learning styles. It's one of those things that, you know, you hear about and people will talk about and it just it just kind of makes sense. Right. Yeah. There's there's kids that just want to move and there's kids that are more visual and there's kids that are more auditory. But honestly, the educational research is absolutely conclusive. It's not supported by research. And so we have a lot of different modalities. And yes, it is wonderful to include different mediums and medias and to get your students active um, and involved in different ways. But do learning styles exist? No, they don't. And so I think it's awesome to see a very prominent YouTuber taking on an educational myth. So check out Veronicium. And if you don't subscribe to him, check it out because it's he's got amazing stuff. And a lot of his things are are science and STEM related, but not all. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we've done it. We've talked again for an hour. It's just amazing that we can yeah. we can do this every right. Day. And it went so quickly too. So Wes, hey, where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter, and I've collected all of my various channels that you can subscribe to if you want to learn about backyard barbecue or media literacy at westfryer.com slash after. How about you, Dr. Neifer? 
I am the on the Twitter is the Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, NCCE.org. By the way, uh, the uh, 2022 conference, which is face to face in Seattle, uh, dates are still being finalized, but there will be a request for proposal up soon if you want to come hang out with people in Seattle. But this here is an NCCE or even Twitter. It is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast where Wes and I get together via stream. Yard and broadcast out to YouTube and Facebook and talk about the tech news and through it through an educational prism. If you'd like to download the podcast, feel free to do so anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated. In fact, I have yet uh, to uh, see a new podcasting app or directly it doesn't fe- feature the Edict Situation Room. If you want to watch us live, again, Facebook and YouTube are your locations. You can also find us on Twitter at EdTechSR. You can go to our website, EdTechSR.com, and not only download show notes, tiny MP3 versions, but you can also get a link to our links and every week we put together uh, a number of links, many of which we would don't get to because our hour runs out. We'd love to see you live, but if you can't see us live, feel free to download us after the fact. We wish you a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy. And we hope to see you here next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good, Good night, night, everybody.